There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael Biden. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Everyone and welcome to Real Time Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired 27-year veteran sergeant from the NYPD. And with me today is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing today, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. You know, guys, we last covered this case um, on, on Thursday. And since then, there's been a lot of information, a lot of new information, a lot of disturbing information that we couldn't verify the last time we were on the air. So people wanted us to speak out against the response, out against the police officers, out against the command structure. And I wouldn't do it until the information was confirmed. And many things have changed since the last time we went on the air. Now there is confirmed information and information that we have found and many others have found Deeply, deeply disturbing. Uh, after Columbine, uh, when the police waited to go in as students were being shot uh, by Klebold and Harris, those were the two shooters at Columbine, the way we respond to active shooters has changed. And the response to active shooters is across the nation, you go in and you confront them and you stop them. Because if you do not stop them, you're not put an end to their shooting, then they're going to keep shooting. And so the police, the tactic is to go in and confront them. In this situation, they did not do that. In fact, for close to an hour, 19 police officers stood outside the door while young children were being slaughtered. I mean, that's deeply, deeply disturbing to all of us. Anyone in the police profession that's deeply, deeply disturbing too. Now, the police, in investigating themselves, basically, admit at this point a, a huge, huge mistake was made. And I believe the chief that was on the scene who was in command, his name was Pete Arredondo, and he was the on-scene commander. And he made the decision not to go in, which... They everyone admits now was a horrendously bad decision, and he basically hung his hat on the fact that he was insisting that this active shooter incident had just magically changed to a hostage situation. Which, how can it an active shooting situation change when the shooter is still shooting people? It's still actively going on, it's not a hostage situation. You must stop this guy, all right? So, for him to hang his hat on that is not. It's not passing the smell test, as we say. So the last time we came on the air, I, I felt almost disturbed once we went off. I did feel disturbed once we went off the air because we didn't have this horror, this horrible situation, which is, I think, one of 22 school shootings that happens every year in this country. And we'll get to that topic later on, too. It's disgusting, and it has to stop. And both Republicans and Democrats have to sit down and get together and come up with some workable plan because what's happening now is not working. And as a result, young kids are being slaughtered. Even the term 
active shooter. It's a term that everyone understands now. We shouldn't have active shooters, period, you know? So one of the things that we're going to try to cover in this is we're going we're gonna to show one of the greatest commanders, I think, in the last few years. Has, his name is uh, Chief Ed Davis from the Boston Police Department. And he was the one who ran the investigation and the response to the Boston Marathon bombers. He's very cool. He's very smart. And he, we're going to put him on here. He's going to speak about this. And he's the first person I've heard so far that said, this wasn't a failure in training. This wasn't a failure in courage. He goes, this was a failure in command. The wrong order was given. And you know, so there is something in policing that says you must only obey lawful orders, right? So had some police officers took it upon themselves, no, chief, you're wrong, we're going in. I don't think he could even do anything because you could you you could argue it later that his his order maybe could be considered not lawful. That could be argued later on down the road, but no one chose to do that. So we're going to cover this today about the things that went wrong. We covered the timeline the last time. The timeline is even a little tighter right now. Uh, there was some misinformation about a school safety officer that confronted the shooter. That's not true. There apparently was not even a school safety officer on duty that day. Um, after the, the perpetrator, and we won't even use his name, crashed his car, about three minutes later, a patrol uh, officer, because he crashed his car and shot at two uh, civilians by the funeral home. Funeral home employees, yeah. patrol car came by three minutes later and confronted a teacher in the parking lot who had the wrong guy. While that was going on, the perpetrator snuck in the side of the building where someone had perched a door open, had put something in the door and kept it open. Of course, another huge, horrendous, horrendous mistake in this incident. But we're going to get to that, and we're going to talk a little bit about the the failure in command. And look, there is still a lot, and I, I don't want to even – a lot of people are jumping to conclusions. Let's fire these cops. Let's put them on the firing squad. Come on, let's stop. Let's – it's been, what, three days since this investigation? There's still more that will come out. There's more things we're going to learn. Because investigation, an accurate investigation, takes time. Phil, I'm going to toss it to you. Yeah, listen, let's um, look at the things that took place right from the beginning. The, the minute they started reporting information from this incident, it was inaccurate. Uh, a rush to get information out, sometimes uh, it leads to inaccurate information. But this was, I think it was intentionally given out bad. The governor of the state of Texas was completely furious when he did the press conference yesterday. He's mad that he was given erroneous information. Now, if someone intentionally gives bad information knowingly, that person should be fired. I, I could agree with that. But I think that there was a tremendous amount of failures. Billy and I uh, talked about it before we went on the air. It was a, 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 a a lot of things went wrong. Like you said, Bill, the, the public safety officer, first off, the district has eight schools. There's only four public safety officers. So when they heard the crash and the shots, they called that public safety officer. He rolls up, he sees a teacher, he engages a teacher. The perpetrator was apparently hiding at that point behind a car or something like that. So uh, again, that's one of the failures. There was only one officer for every two schools. So 
right there. Then the, that door that was propped open, another mistake. There was just so many different things. Now the communication, I think that was one of the big factors in this because you had children from inside the school. And it gives me the chills to even say this, that were calling, begging for help during this incident. And this incident commander, he made a huge, huge mistake. I think that's clear. Uh, and then at some point, the Border Patrol tactical unit said, you know what, we're going in. They didn't, they they disregarded the order to stand down. They went in and they terminated the situation. But Phil, uh, you know, they were in there standing by for a long time and they were being held back. Yes. And, yes. you know, and they were outside for yes. a long time and they didn't bring the dogs in. You know what I mean? Yeah. You got to bring the dogs in. There's an active shooter. Don't hold back the dogs. Bring them in. Of course. And Billy, you made the point earlier that we've learned from Columbine and all these other things that no longer can you take a laid back and, and contain the perpetrator. And no, they're going to keep killing until they're terminated. So now the new uh, policy with active school shooters is to go in, go towards the gunfire until you find and terminate and stop the shooting. And that was not followed in this particular case. Now with all the other mistakes that are going on and all of the, the different stories changing everything, I think, Everybody needs to just stop for a second. Let the investigation continue. Uh, we know some of the facts. I don't think we know all of the facts. Uh, there was definitely a communication breakdown. They did drills and training recently on the uh, the layout of the school and stuff. Where were the people that took part in those drills? Were those people present that were familiar with it? And that incident commander held them back. I think that that's a grave, grave mistake. All of these things need to be looked at and addressed. And again, you talked about the politics of it a little bit, Billy. We need to come together. We've been saying that there was a bill put up yesterday. It was knocked by Chuck Schumer that would have put uh, armed officers uh, in schools or armed teachers throughout the country. That they don't seem to want to budge. They want to go one extreme on one side and one extreme on the other side. That has to stop. We need to come together and, and figure this out. And it's not only the gun part of it and hardening the schools. It's also the, the mental illness part of it. We talked about it the other day that there's a, there's a well, common you know, denominator. It's a, it's a multi-tiered. It's a yes, multi-tiered yes. thing. It's not just one do. thing. It's not just no, one it's thing. It's not just gun control. It is gun control, but it's not just gun control. Right. It's not just mental illness, but it is mental illness. It's not just a lot. And in Sandy Hook, five and six-year-olds murdered by a, a, a nutcase with an AR-15. It has to stop. Absolutely, Billy. But, you know, the governor of the state of Texas made a, a really good point I thought yesterday when he said there have been 18-year-olds uh, purchasing firearms for 150 years in the state, but now we have school shootings. So that is really powerful what he said there. And, and you know, people could say, well, he's trying to dodge the issue of gun control. No, I think that there's something to be said there. If you look at these Previous shootings, they, they seem to fall into the same category, 18 to 20-year-old males that are, uh, you know, they're delusional, they're, they're uh, retracted from society and all the different things. They, they watch these video games. So all of these things, that's one of the, that's going to the root of the problem to me. Now, but for the time being, all schools throughout the country, each and every school needs to have a hardening of the target. Those are the targets. They need to be hardened. And we know we've gone through it. I'm not going to repeat myself. Phil, let me just you know stop you for one second. I have been on scenes where I, our ESU, that's probably the greatest SWAT team in the world, 
has gone to locations and the, the commander is the captain or the inspector or the chief on the scene. I've seen the ESU lieutenant say, this is what we're going to do, chief. Or this is what we're right. going to do, inspector. Of and he takes control. And the inspector is happy to let him because this dude knows what he's doing. He's well-trained. And he may even say, chief, can we throw in a uh, – they got to get permission now in NYPD to use a flash grenade. To right, use a flash to bang. Back in the day, they didn't have to, but we'll tell the story later on about that. But we need to throw in a flashbang. And folks, if you're not familiar with that, a flashbang isn't designed to hurt anyone. It's designed to disorient, disorient the shooter so he doesn't know what the hell's going on. Boom, they get in the door and they take him out. I don't know if this uh, Uvalde, Texas, had anyone trained the way our ESU is. Our ESU lives for situations like this, and they would – the lieutenant – the captain from ESU would take control, and this this situation would be over in a matter of minutes. Well, Billy, uh, we have the luxury of having those well-trained that they constantly training ESU offices in New York City. Now, all of these small towns may not have that capability. A lot of times, I know specifically in Florida, I know a little bit of uh, Florida law enforcement, the offices that are on patrol, they carry tactical gear when they're ESU, what we call SWAT, well, I use that term SWAT certified. They carry that tactical gear in their trunk. So now they go from a patrol officer, let's say going to a family dispute or something like that. Somebody calls out that they need ESU. They now put on their gear. They respond to the scene. So it's a little bit different in every state and every town. So in this particular town, they will, I think the incident commander was saying, we don't have the proper gear. He didn't want anybody to get hurt. And Bill, you and I talked about it. The number one job of a supervisor in the police department and any law enforcement agency is to keep his men safe. Obviously, I get that. But in this particular case, in this case, you had to breach this guy. He was killing little children. There was no time to wait. Well, for in this circumstance, the lives of these children take a higher level than the lives right. of the officers. Right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You have Absolutely. to go do it. And Absolutely. that's police work. And you know something, you've risked your life before. I've, risked, I've been shot at. You've been shot at. And you know something, it's you have to do it. You have to go in. You can't say, all right, I'm going to protect my men. No, there's there's uh, 19 or 20 or whatever it was, uh, nine year olds in this classroom and two adults. You have to protect them. I'm going to play a little of this with Brian Enton and the chief Ed Davis from Boston is interviewed on this. And he's really a smart guy. And I just want to uh, put this up on the screen. We'll play it here. Speaking of the governor, here he is today. Lad, I am livid about what happened. I was on this very stage two days ago, and I was telling the public information that had been told to me in a room just a few yards behind where we're located right now. I wrote down hand notes in detail about what everybody in that room told me in sequential order about what happened. And when I came out here on this stage and told the public what happened, it was a recitation of what people in that room told me, whether it be law enforcement officials or non-law enforcement officials, whatever the case may be. And as everybody has learned, the information that I was given turned out in part to be inaccurate. And I'm absolutely livid about that. And here's my expectation. My expectation is that the law enforcement leaders that are leading the investigations, which includes uh, the Texas Rangers and the FBI, they get to the bottom 
of every fact with absolute certainty. There are people who deserve answers the most. And those are the families whose lives have been destroyed. They need answers that are accurate. And it is inexcusable. All right, that was the governor uh, clearly, clearly angry uh, here about what he had been told. Uh, he went on national television and praised law. You know, Phil, I just want to say one thing before they will continue with this. But to get accurate information, you have to wait. And I think that law enforcement has to use the addendum is that this is what we know so far, but it's subject to change. They need to say that because things change. What you believe to be true in the first 10 hours changes in the next 10 hours, in the next 20, in the next 24. So an addendum must be said, listen, this is what we believe to be true right now, but it is subject to change. I, I agree with that, uh, Billy. But in this case, the uh, the governor was being given the information. This wasn't hours. This was days later. So I, I agree with you saying 100%. But in this particular case, he was given bad information, I think, intentionally. Number of especially federal agents who came here off duty uh, and ran in. They were part of the Border Patrol's tactical team and ran into the school. Many of them didn't even have time to put their body armor on, and they were the ones who eventually went in and took uh, the gunman down. I want to bring in Ed Davis, who ran the Boston Police Department during the marathon bombing. If there's anybody who understands what it is like to make command decisions during an incident, uh, it is him. Bring you in uh, right now. Uh, I don't even want to say should. Uh, the school district police off, uh, police chief still have a job. How long should he still have a job for and why hasn't he been fired yet? I, those are questions that um, are unanswerable right now. Um, we've been at this now for three days. Um, we got bad information at first. Um, we got uh, the information changing. Um, and, and now uh, the truth came out and, and I give the Colonel um, Colonel McCraw uh, credit for getting up there and telling us exactly what happened, but more importantly, telling the families exactly what happened. But now there has to be follow up. Um, governors shouldn't get mad, they should do something. Um, something needs to be done here. Um, I don't wanna rush to judgment. There's investigations that have to be, that have to be conducted, but the, the activity, the, the response, at this point in time, from everything that we've heard, is incomprehensible from a, a professional police perspective. And it's really important to move quickly uh, to, to... Folks, the gentleman on the screen, in the center of the screen, his name is Pete Arredondo, and he is the school district police chief. And that day, he was the incident commander who made that horrible decision not to go inside to do the right thing here and put people in charge of this investigation that were not involved in the response. Uh, it, it needs to be done objectively. Um, we, we need to get answers. And this is a For dark sure. day in the history of policing. For all of the money spent, for all of the active shooter training situations, the Uvalde City Police Department SWAT team even posted a Facebook picture showing their active shooter training, on and on and on and on. And yet, when it comes down to it, it comes down to one man making a decision under fire, perhaps having never been in combat before. How are parents to feel confident that when they send their kids to school and police respond, 
they're going to have learned the lessons of of Columbine and of Parkland and now of Uvalde. Those are important points. Parents are not going to feel comfortable until something significant happens. We've been training this up for 20 years. But make no mistake about this. This was not a failure of training. This was a failure of command. There were people there. Did everyone hear that? This was not a failure of training. This was a failure of command. So Very important. we have to put that squarely on the commander's shoulders. And you know something? Did the guy mean well? Yeah, he probably did. But he made a huge, huge mistake that no doubt cost lives. There who made decisions that delayed the response, delayed saving children who were wounded, and, and, and resulted in more fire, more, more fire being laid down by the suspect. And I, I don't know how, how you try to say this was anything but an active shooter when there were active shots being fired. There's no excuse for this. You need to go in. There are a bunch of different ways you could do this. I, I, I do at least want to give the, the incident commander, the, the chief of police at the, the school district, uh, his due in the sense of what he told the Texas Rangers. Here is them explaining why he explained to them that he decided that it was no longer an active shooter, but what they call a barricaded suspect. Take a listen. Again, you know, the on-scene commander considered a barricaded subject and that there was time and there were no ch more children at risk. Obviously, ob obviously, you know, based upon the information we have, there were children in that classroom that were at risk and it was, in fact, still an active shooter situation and not a barricaded subject. Is there any possible explanation for confusing these two? Because if someone's shooting and there's kids inside bleeding out, it feels pretty obvious. Yes, it does. The simple answer to that is this could not have been confusing if there were live rounds being fired inside that school while there were 19 police officers in the hallway. I don't know how, even with the commander in charge, I don't know how you could stop the officers from going in over the demands of the commander not to go in. It, it's just a bizarre situation. But right now, we can't let the initial information be the final word. We have to find out what's going on here. I always get nervous when responsibility rolls so far downhill and, 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 and the lowest rung of, of the responsibility gets, gets sort of uh, gets, gets to hold the bag on us. So let's find out what the commander knew and when he knew it. Was the communication coming out of the 911 center to that commander? Were there other commanders there from other agencies that could have stepped up? There's, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered here. And I'm not going to vilify anybody. There was heroic police activity that occurred there. And, and in one thing that happened was that shooter was confined to that classroom. He didn't get into other classrooms. So lives were saved. But, but the initial response and the initial blush on this is that there were huge mistakes made. And some people died as a result of it. And that cannot be acceptable to this nation. And what an excellent point um, that even when we think we have the facts now, 
to wait for more facts to come out because we thought we had the facts two days ago. And boy, uh, have they changed at this point. And now we have a, a, a new a new focus, and that may not end up being the right one. Uh, sir, it's always good to see. I appreciate you taking the time on a Friday to be with us. Your expertise is really unparalleled in this, as your as is your experience. Folks, that was um, retired Boston Chief of Police, Ed Davis. Calm, calm guy. Uh, wasn't trying to be political. Wasn't trying to pull any punches. Just came right to the conclusion that this was not an era of training. This was not an era of response. This was an era of command. Absolutely, Billy. I think he made one of the best points so far. But, uh, you know, th there's two points I want to make. One is uh, the commander, uh, the incident commander at the time said that he felt that it was a hostage situation and not an active shooter situation. Obviously wrong. But now if you look at it from the beginning, now there's an accident, a person goes into a school, uh, you know, shots are being fired. And uh, if there's some type of communication, like don't come in, I'm holding hostages. Okay. It's a hostage situation. I get it. You wait for hostage negotiators and you know, you do the, or, you know, you contain the subject, all the things that we would do in a hostage situation. This was not that. 100% not that. Number two point, um, you made the point earlier, Billy, in New York City, the ESU, the Emergency Service Unit, the AKA SWAT teams, uh, the supervisor of the ESU unit in New York, they usually will make the call. They'll ask the chief or they'll con consult with the chief or whoever it is that's on the scene that's the incident commander, whether it be an inspector, captain, whatever it is. Uh, you know, this is what we're going to do. Blah, blah, blah. We're gonna, and I think that they're the ones that are trained in the specifics of breaching suspects, specifically school shooters. They do all this type of training. So the, the decision on whether or not to breach has to go into the hands of the supervisor of the SWAT team or the tactical unit or the issue, whatever it is. I think that that's where one of the things that could be uh, done going forward in this situation, horribly, horribly, it went wrong. And I don't think that there was any mistake that this was not a hostage situation, even though the incident commander was, was treating it as one. Uh, it could have been mistaken for that in the beginning, you know, some type of an accident, the guy runs into the school with a gun because after firing shots, they don't know what they got, but that's in the early, early stages of the incident. Once you hear shots being fired, he's inside of a school. We know what the results of that are from the past. And then now that the investigation has obviously uh, been done and they know that he made threats on social media, that he was going to a school, he shot his grandmother, all the things that we know. So this was clearly not, clearly not a hostage barricaded situation. This was an active shooter situation. And I know that uh, the uh, police chief Ed Davis there, he said a lot of heroics, uh, were done that day by police officers, law enforcement officers. He's right. We need to acknowledge that as well. However, very, very big failures as well. And we also, that's why we were on today to acknowledge that. I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't recognize that there were mistakes and call it out. You know, Phil, one of the things I spoke to you about um, off the air, and maybe it's not the proper time, but I just to say this, but I just, I just have to say this. Policing in America in the last few years has been disparaged and beaten down by the defund the police or police public servants. Are they warriors? Are they community police officers? Police have to be a lot of different things, not just community policing officers. They also have to be warriors. And, you know, a lot of people said, we don't want that warrior mentality. You wanted it this day, you know, and you didn't get it. 
You didn't get it. For the most part, you didn't get it. So do we want PR people? Do we want warriors? Do we want community policing types? What do we want? Or do we want a special unit to be the warriors? But then they may not be there when we need them. I'm just raising these points because, look, policing in this country in the last few years has taken such a beating with the defund the police. They just put out another law, federal law, the other day as this was going on. Yep. Uh, further restricting the activities of police in this country. In New York City, they have these arcane laws like the diaphragm law. Just stupidity. Outs and out and out stupidity. So I just had to get that off my chest because Billy, I'm, I'm glad you officers these days are not warriors because they want them to be community police officers. Listen, there's there's a spot in law enforcement for community police officers, obviously. But I think you're bringing up such a great point, Billy, because there was that law that was passed. It's restricting specific uh, uh, equipment from federal law enforcement offices and and uh, some of the other things. There no more no-knock warrants, whatever it was. But when we go back to Ferguson, which was under the Obama administration, they started to say, oh, we don't want to see uh, these tanks and military equipment. And they started removing that equipment from law enforcement's capabilities. And that's the wrong message to send, especially when you have a person that's deranged with an AR going into a school and they can hold off police officers that only have a sidearm. It's not good. We need to have readily accessible uh, equipment. We need teams that are trained in this particular area of you want to call it warriors whatever it is we need to have those things and the defund the police movement and the restriction of equipment and military style equipment in, in police agencies throughout the country wrong big big mistake unfortunately we live in a world where there's going to be people that are going to do bad things and we need to have the tools at our hands at our fingertips i mean billy you and i both came on the job we were carrying six shot 38s and then we eventually went to the nine millimeters when so many officers were outgunned so we have to stay up with what the what's going on in the so world the, and the incident that changed almost overnight us from going from revolvers to nine millimeters was uh, an officer named Scott Goodell. Scott Goodell, yeah. In the 100th precinct, he was only 20 or 21 years old, I believe. He had like six months on the job. He was executed basically in a gunfight while he was reloading, reloading his, gun. his gun. Yeah. As the perpetrator had a nine millimeter with I don't know how many was in his magazine. Overnight, pretty much, you know, polit I shouldn't say overnight. It still took a little while for us to switch over to nine millimeters. And the 3 4 precinct. In the 90s, 1992, cops were getting outgunned by these guys carrying MAC-10s with 32-round clips. And they were yeah. firing with their 38s. And finally, we got Bill Bratton, the voice of reason. Bill Bratton came to the NYPD and said, no, we're going to 9 millimeters." And even that, all of these woke politicians were like, oh, my God, we don't want the police to have nines. Let them use slingshots, you know? It was, like, ridiculous. Bill, I'm so glad you brought up Bill Branton because if if the, the the if I remember correctly the the way that the events took place, Scott Goodell was executed while he was reloading his gun. Uh, the perpetrator walked up to him and uh, while he was reloading, just shot him and killed him. So then we went to the speed loaders, if you remember, and then they had rounds that were a little bit more powerful, the plus P rounds. And then when Branton came in, he was the the chief of the transit police, he gave it to the transit police, the transit police that had the nine millimeters before the NYPD. And then when he rolled over and, and, and Phil, police, do you remember what the NYPD did to transit police when Bratton gave them nines? No, not exactly. They banned them from using the NYPD range. 
That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That, that I could remember going to the range and the instructor saying, the NYPD will never have nine millimeters. It'll never happen. Automatics are too dangerous. And then two years later, I had one. So never say never, I guess, is the lesson there. Yeah, but- I, I was in I was in the um, they, they gave it to anti-crime first. So it was like the experimental group. Yeah, I was a crime sergeant. I I got my nine like years before patrol sergeants and patrol officers got their guns. And initially, we had to buy the guns ourselves, and then they got some kind of grant, a federal grant, and we were reimbursed for the money uh, yeah. for the guns. Well, listen at the uh, at the end of the day, the point is is that as trends change in crime and policing, we need to be up on those trends and. As of late, in the last five, 10 years, all this to fund the police talk. And then when they saw the Ferguson riots and they allowed them to destroy uh, cities and towns, and then they said, no, we don't want military equipment. Now, the, the general rule in New York is anyway, that if there's a demonstration, they they uh, they respond to the demonstration without having helmets on, without having shields, without having uh, riot nightsticks. Without, so they go in there, they get injured when they start throwing the stuff at them and attacking the officers, and then they call in. So it's it's really kind of backwards. We should have the officers on the front line of any demonstrations with the shields and the helmets, and you know that way, if anybody wants to do something stupid, they realize they're going to be met with a greater force. And that was always the trend in policing. You needed to have if a guy came at you with his fist, you pulled out your nightstick. If a guy came at you with a knife or a stick, you pulled out your gun. You always wanted to be above. But anyhow, that's a discussion for another day, I guess. All right, let me play this. timeline of the tragedy at Robb Elementary begins at 11.37 a.m. A teacher propping the west side door open, likely unaware that she's about to allow evil into the school. A minute later, Salvador Ramos crashes his grandmother's truck into a culvert at the edge of school property. Two witnesses at the funeral home across the street rushed to help. They saw a man with a gun exit the passenger side with a backpack. They immediately began running. We almost began shooting at him. 11.30, the first 911 call comes from the school, the same teacher who propped the door open, alerting about the crash and a man with a gun. One minute later, Ramos is in the school parking lot and shooting at the campus. Initial reports said a school resource officer confronted the 18-year-old at the back of the school. Thursday, we learned that was not correct. And now we know the assigned resource officer was not on campus, but was in his cruiser. But had heard the 911 call with a man with a gun, drove immediately to the area, sped to what he thought was the man with a gun, to the back of the school, which turned out to be a teacher and not the suspect. In doing so, he drove right by the suspect who was hunkered down behind a vehicle where he began shooting at the school. 11.33, Ramos is inside the building. DPS showing a diagram of his movements before shooting into connected classrooms 111 and 112. A surviving student telling one network the shooter entered the room as her teacher was about to lock the door. That he shot more than 100 rounds based on the audio evidence at that time. 11.35. Three Uvalde City Police come through the same propped open door Ramos entered. Three other local officers and a sheriff's deputy follow them. The first three officers go to the closed classroom door as two are grazed by gunfire. Shooting continues for many minutes. 12.03, a 911 call from inside the adjoining classrooms. She identified herself and whispered she's in room 112. 
At that time, 19 officers were in the hallway outside rooms 111 and 112. See, that's the most disturbing thing to everyone is that shooting is going on. There's 19 officers outside the door and they were not given the command, go in, go in. I think that perhaps in some departments, the officers would have went in without the order. Uh, you know, and that's where we get into that whole thing, warrior or uh, public servant. You know, that's there's an, another time to argue that. But officers did not go forward. There were plenty of officers to do whatever needed to be done, with one exception, is that the, the incident commander inside believed they needed more equipment and more officers to do a tactical breach. Phil, more equipment? Are you kidding me? This is this not a time to wait for equipment as kids are getting killed. 100%, Billy, 100%. Just more equipment. No, no, we go in. Let's go in. We take our chances. We got to go in. Listen, it would be nice to have the equipment at your fingertips, but in a situation like this, no, there's no time to waste. Get in, terminate the situation, terminate the shooting, and that's the that's the protocol here. You know, Phil, we, I mentioned earlier, and it's easy to, to Monday morning quarterback, but I mentioned that you're, as a police officer, required to obey lawful orders. Down the road, this could be argued that this perhaps was not a lawful order based on what was occurring. I, I think some common sense has come into play too, Billy. Whether it's lawful or not, common sense, you have a situation, and most officers' instincts would be to run in and do that. They were held back. I don't want to, you know, I, I'm not disparaging anyone. I can't point fingers. I wasn't there, but it sounds like that order was obviously wrong, and I think that those officers are going to have to struggle with that, that they could have gone in there and, and maybe terminated the situation and saved some more lives. It's it's really a terrible, terrible uh, uh, events that took place. Just terrible. Still more 911 calls coming from inside those classrooms. At 12.10, she called back, and room 12 advised her multiple were dead. 12.13, again, she called on the phone. Again, at 12.16, she's called back and said there was eight to nine students alive. 12.21, a child calls for help. The operator tells her, stay on the line and be quiet. Three gunshots are heard in the audio. Still, officers don't go forward. McCraw tries to explain to the media and families listening. Again, you know, the on-scene commander considered a barricaded subject and that there was time and there were no ch more children at risk. Yeah, you know, that's, that's the ridiculous point that now this transitioned from an active shooter to a barricaded uh, perp situation. And there's no evidence of that whatsoever as even Chief Ed Davis of the Boston Police Department said, that's nonsensical that he, he tried to say that. There's no evidence of, of a barricaded, uh, you know, hostage situation at that point. I'm sorry. That's just incorrect. Obviously, ob obviously, you know, based upon the information we have, there were children in that classroom that were at risk. And it was, in fact, still an active shooter situation. Minutes later, the little girl pleads with 911 for help. Approximately 12.43. At 1247, she asked 911 to please send the police now. Were the officers outside the doors aware of the 911 calls from within? DPS Director McCraw unable to answer that directly, but also admitting. Hey, from the, from the benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, of course it was not the right decision. It was a wrong decision, period. There's no, no excuse for that. But again, I wasn't there, but I'm just telling you, from what we know, we believe there should have been an entry at that as soon as you can. 12.50, the Border Patrol SWAT team arrives. They get access to the area almost 80 minutes after the shooting started. 
using the janitor's keys to unlock the door. 1251, Salvador Ramos is killed, an anguished and angry Macraw, saying what happened in Uvalde goes against the state's active shooter training and certification. That doctrine requires officers, we don't care what agency you're from, you don't have to have a leader on the scene. Every officer lines up, stacks up, goes and finds where those rounds are being fired at and keeps shooting until the subject is dead, period. But of course, we know that did not happen. We did not see or hear the Uvalde School District Chief of Police today. This case going to be a case study for law enforcement for the years to come. And, and this poignant footnote, Steve, there were 19 law enforcement officers in the hallway, 19 children in those two classrooms Got who it. lost their lives. Very, you know, it, it's so, I mean, look, I know even the, the chief, um, Steve McGraw said, you know, 2020 hindsight is there. And he said, yeah, it was the wrong decision. It was the wrong decision in the heat of battle. It was still the wrong decision, you know, and when you can, when things have slowed down and calmed down and we did the investigation, it's still the wrong decision. Billy, uh, in the NYPD, we had the luxury of if a person was calling 911 generally, not as generally, we would be getting that information over our radios very, very quickly. So I don't know if there was a communications failure there. If there was, that needs to be corrected because that child calling 911, that information should have been transmitted to those officers that were on the front line immediately had those officers in that hallway those 19 officers gotten that information from 12 13 that's a, a half an hour 40 minutes before this uh, situation is terminated they may have acted differently were they given that information i don't know but that's a very very big question i think and every police department every law enforcement agency there should be a communications uh stream from nine people calling 911 to the officers on the scene. I don't think that there's any, in 2022, any reason that there should be a breakdown in communication with something like that. That was very vital to this. You had a person inside the school, a child, communicating. That was very, very important to this situation. And it just seems like it was it fell on deaf ears and it's terrible. And that child lost the, her life. And, and it's just, I, I'm sure we're going to hear more of these stories, but... Uh, it's just, it's just unbelievable, and it's terrible. You know, Phil, I just want to make a, a couple of comments, you know, and I, I like to address the chat. And, uh, folks, I know everyone is very emotional about this, as, as they should be, and as we are also, as we are. I mean, when I struggled for the last day and a half, two days, uh, you know, when all this information changed, uh, at first, of course, we were defending the police response, but we didn't have this information. And now that once we have it, I still think there's going to be more. And the Boston police chief said the same thing at Davis. The investigation's not completed. So let's not just keep, you know, pound. But he came right out and he's the first real heavy duty chief that I respect that came out and said this was a failure of command. All right. So let's go from there now. And was it, a was it a failure on other levels also? Yeah. But let's wait for the investigation to see how many levels we failed on obviously propping open that door was my God. I mean, one of the, you just think he would have never been able to get into the school if that door wasn't propped open. So another huge, huge thing, 
And when when you look into these things, and when Billy, he he like, actually pulled that door closed behind him, so that kept the first responders from getting through that door. That's what I read in one of the reports. So again, uh, just well, just you know, what, Phil. Another thing that I find unacceptable is that when did it occur to them that we can just get the keys to the door? How did that take forty five minutes to that register in someone's brain? Oh, let's grab a janitor. He probably has the keys to this door. I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? What about the public safety officer that's assigned to the school? Shouldn't he have a key to every door that? But there was in? no public safety officer there that day. There was none. Right, I know, but there was one that responded when they called. No, no he was just a patrol officer. He was patrol. Oh, it was it was regular patrol. Regular police patrol. Officer. He was the okay, first I one thought, on the scene. I, I no, thought no, I no, heard that. We're they, just using, uh, you know, we're using terminology that isn't quite accurate. But you know, the the point is, is that. When did it occur to one of those 19 officers outside that door that, oh, let's grab a janitor. He probably has the keys to this door. So now you don't have to worry about booming it. You don't have to worry. You don't need heavy duty equipment. You know, just use what's called a key. Open the door and let's go in and take this guy out. You know, especially Billy, especially while you're in that hallway and you're hearing those shots go off and, and you, there was, I didn't even want to say there's probably screams and stuff going on. I mean, I don't know how they, they held back, but it's just a terrible, a terrible thing. I don't know. I think that at some point that SWAT team or the, the I'm sorry, the Border Patrol TAC team, they just said, no, we're not listening anymore. We're going in and they, they terminated them. And thank God for them. You know, a Hawk fan for life, 88, um, training failure. No, you know, in actuality, it, it, there, there's a lot of things wrong. But the main failure here was a failure of command. It was a failure of taking command and doing what you're supposed to do during an active shooter, which is to go in and confront the shooter. You know, unfortunately, you know, there's an expression on the police department. It's probably a national or an international expression. And it's, uh, and it, it's, it's huge in this one. It said a million attaboys don't equal one our shit. And this is the hugest our shit I've ever heard of, meaning a mistake. You know, they could say you do something, you do a thousand things right. Attaboy, attaboy. You make one mistake, ah, shit. And this is beyond an ah, shit. This is just, you know, we can't even, uh, I don't, it's not even in this league of what I'm talking about. It's just a horrendous situation. But I think a lot of folks, even that listen to us, police off the cuff, you guys want to vent, and that's fine, you know. Uh, and, you know, and I always say that folks that listen to us, we give it to you from a police perspective, we give it to you from our perspective. And I'm not changing who I am, retired Sergeant Bill Cannon. I am who I am, and I'm going to give my opinion. If you, folks don't like it, I tell people right in the chat, then go to one of there's a million other podcasts. Go to those, you know. But this is my point of view. This is from my 27 years of police experience. This is my, my experience. I think I was a pretty damn good cop, and I think so was Phil Grimaldi. And we're going to give it to you from, from the streets, you know, from what we learned in the streets and what we learned during our police careers. And when something's wrong, we will we will call it out. But we're not going to call it out prematurely just to, you know, uh, throw a piece of meat to the crowd, you know. Billy, I just want to make a point. I'm looking through the chat and I'm seeing some of the things and they're talking about a locksmith and so stuff like that. I mean, listen, the reality of it is this. Uh, people that are talking haven't been dealt with uh, 
violent situations like this. Obviously, you couldn't get a locksmith to go in there. Anybody that got near that door was going to face gunfire from an AR-15, a 223 round that will penetrate a bulletproof vest. So it was really a kill zone. It really was a kill zone. And it was a tough, tough decision to think about going into that door. But I think that us as law enforcement offices, uh, we take that risk every day when we go to work. And our instinct would have been to go in there and breach that door and and kill the shooter. That that would have been our instincts. I, I don't know what I would have done in that situation. I don't think I would have did what those officers did, but who knows? I mean, listen, the situation is very fluid at the time, but when you hear those uh, shots going off and you hear those babies crying and you hear that 911 call, there's no time to waste. I think it was a tremendous, tremendous mistake. But again, uh, some of the comments about locksmith and stuff, that's not reality. That's not even being logical at all. So, uh, you know, so I, I appreciate the comments, but but sometimes they're just, they're not real, you know? So uh, we're talking about it, like you said, Billy, from a law enforcement perspective, we were on the front lines. We know what it was about. And those, you know, Phil, it it comes down to um, when people run away, law enforcement runs in, people run away from danger and you're supposed to run toward the danger. I remember when I was in anti-crime, this guy did a knife point robbery right in front of me of a woman's fur coat. And I started running after him and, I asked him, he, I said, because I was in plain clothes, I said, how did you know I was the police? He goes, most people run away from robberies. He goes, you were running toward it. It was like something, I think, thank you. That was a great, uh, you know, a great compliment, you know. Bill, you and I both on 9-11 ran towards the world's greatest, uh, not the world's, but the, the country's greatest terrorist attack. I mean, the collapse of 210-story buildings. I don't think there's anything worse than that that we've experienced in our careers. And we went towards it because that's what we're paid to do. And I watched it from home and I told my wife and it was a terrible day. I have to leave. And, and I had to leave my two small children at the time. And and I'm sure you had to do the same thing. And we went there and, you know, uh, we thought we were doing the right thing. Meanwhile, we're now suffering the, the ailments. and But we had to do it. We had to go. Yeah. We knew it at the time that we were breathing in that garbage. But uh, it is what it is. And that's what you do when you sign up to be a law enforcement officer. And uh so I guess, you know, the wrong decision was made on this case, obviously. Well, Nubaldi, as the details of the police response begin to become clear this morning. Parents there demanding answers. Why were officers held back as children were dying inside the school? Some of the students begging for help, able to hear police on the other side of the door. We begin this morning with ABC's Maria Villarreal in San Antonio. Good morning to you, Maria. Hey, good morning, guys. You know, parents I spoke with, some that have lost their children and others with survivors. They are going through a lot of different emotions, um, grief of like frustration, anger. Um, They are sad. And more than anything right now, they're very confused. They want to be able to grieve with their families, the loss they've had. They want to grieve with the community. But unfortunately, right now, they say there is a lot of distraction going on with this new shocking information. This morning, a stunning admission from authorities in Texas acknowledging police should have acted sooner to breach the classroom with the gunman. Of course it was not the right decision. It was a wrong decision, period. There's no no excuse for that. With parents waiting desperately outside Robb Elementary. <laughs> Authorities now revealing that a teacher propped open a door at 11.27 a.m. The shooter used to enter minutes later. Then, at 11.33, the shooter entered classrooms 111 and 112, by 11.35, seven Uvalde police officers are inside the school. 
but police do not enter the barricaded classroom, wrongly believing that the situation was no longer an active shooter, but a barricaded subject. There were children in that classroom that were at risk, and it was, in fact, still an active shooter situation. Also, at 12.03, the 911 calls from inside the rooms begin. Over a 44-minute period, students inside begging for help. Finally, at 12.50, authorities entering the room using a key and killing the shooter, who law enforcement say had purchased 1,657 rounds of ammunition ahead of his rampage. On Friday afternoon, Governor Abbott reacting to the new details about the shooting timeline after he praised law enforcement on Tuesday. I was misled. I am livid about what happened. There are people who deserve answers the most. And those are the families whose lives have been destroyed. They need answers that are accurate. And now this morning, as we see new images of school children escaping through windows, we're hearing from the family of 10-year-old Lexi Rubio killed at the school. Her father, a Uvalde Sheriff's deputy, holding her picture close to his heart, responding to the shooting while off duty. I go turn on my radio. I turn it on and like that, I just hear panic in everybody's voices. And me, I just got dressed, got in my unit, took off. And I get there and I see where everybody's posted at. In front of my baby girl's door. Once I see them open the door and open fire, I I don't just my heart drop. Lexi's mother, hoping her daughter's dreams can live on. <laughs> she wanted to be a lawyer, like I said. She wanted to play softball. She wanted to make a difference. I want that for her now. She still can. So if people could help that dream be realized, that'd be great. I spoke with the parents of 10-year-old Noah Arona. He is one of the survivors. The bullet actually went in through the back and came out his shoulder. His parents actually showed me the hole where the bullet came out at the top. It was tough to look at. They do not know how he was able to sit or lay in that classroom without crying, without making a sound for so long. And while they do want answers, they also want to focus on his recovery. Right now, we do know that the Texas Department of Public Safety will be investigating the law enforcement actions that happened on that day. Wit. Just heart-wrenching stories, Maria. Thank you. Unbelievable, man. You hear these personalized stories of some of these things that happen, and they're just uh, they're heartbreaking. Please, folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like this show and you want to subscribe, just please go on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. It's free. Give us a thumbs up. Ring that bell. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And you see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube family. Uh, and we have five different levels at that. Uh, you know, folks, I take this podcast um, as seriously as I took my job as a police officer, as a sergeant, detective sergeant in homicide. And I take it personally, as you guys can see. And so does Phil. I know, Bill. It's tough. It's tough. I, I've been brought to tears many times on this uh, last few days, Billy. I get it, and it, it's it's you become so personally involved in it that it just it just it just gets to you. But 
Anyway, Bill, I want to make a point about one of the comments. Pauline sure. Buckles, she says, Bill and Phil are fair and true. And that's the point that we try to make on this show that we're not going to, we're not going to bullshit anybody. We're going to say it as it is. And that's why we came on today. We, uh, we wanted to just not take the position that we weren't going to, you know, be outspoken about the mistakes that were made. That's not what the, this podcast is about. We're about true facts and, uh, the heroes of the, of the story. And uh, we're going to just call them as they come, you know, we're going to call them balls and strikes as they say. And uh, look at that young, beautiful uh, woman that uh, when she was killed, she was, she was found huddling with, uh, with uh, some of the children and uh, trying to protect them with her body. So uh, I'm sure we're going to hear many, many uh, heroics stories about, uh, about this young lady. I believe her first name is Eva. And, uh, it's 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 just tough to hear that story. What we just heard about that little girl, and uh, I just when I heard that the uh, the girl was making a nine one one call yesterday, I mean, I broke down. You know, I got teared up a little bit. But uh, Billy, it only shows that you're human, pal. And uh, we we listen. We, you cannot be human and be part of these stories and not react to it. So uh, you know, you Phil, I also want to caution everybody. Not to paint all these officers with a broad brush like they're cowards and this, because you don't really of know the full not. story yet. What there were failures here, yes, there were failures. Was it cowardice? I don't, I'm not going to stretch to that and say it was cowardice. You know, we talk, and again, we brought up, and the reason I brought it up was warrior police officer versus public servant versus community police officer. I don't know what the experiences are of these officers here. And I'm not I'm certainly not going to stretch to call them cowards. I'm not going to stretch. Right now, we know one thing for sure. There was a failure in command. That we can 100% put the stamp on it and say, yeah, there was a failure in command. Let's continue with the, the investigation and get all the facts out before we start. You know, people are ready to say, oh, why aren't these 19 cops fired? Come, come on. They just found out what these cops went in. Some of them exchange gunfire, you know, and people are saying, oh, let's fire these guys. You know, the chief Pete uh, uh, Arredondo, you know, oh, is he fired? I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure he wouldn't want to appear at a press conference with all of these grieving families and all these press that want, they smell blood in the water and they want, you know, they want a piece of meat, you know. So let for that, I say, let's wait. For the investigation to unfold. Let's get more information. You see how much more information we got two days later? There's going to be more information coming out two days from now that we didn't know about. I'm sure things are going to change. And uh, listen, let's face it. He made the wrong decision. There's no question about that. But did he intentionally want 19 children and two teachers to be slaughtered and others to be injured? Of course not. Of course not. He made a mistake. It's an unfortunate, it was a very deadly mistake. But uh, if he gave erroneous information out or he lied about things, should he be held accountable? 100%. Should he be disciplined? 100%. Should he be fired? Maybe so. I'm not going to make that decision. I don't know. But I think that once everything is uh, uh, revealed, all the uh, facts come out about it, then those decisions can be made. Um, and anything that's done to him, demonizing him is not going to bring those people back. I think that we have to maybe learn from the mistakes that were made. That's usually what uh, a common sense approach to these type of things is. Um, 
you know, that's the only thing I think we could do at this point. Um, you know, it's just a very emotional thing. And Billy, you had said to me, you know, you, you felt uncomfortable about even covering it any further. And I get it. I was feeling that way too, but, uh, this is part of, uh, our lives. And, and I was told uh, a long time ago that, uh, no matter what I try to do as a retired police officer, uh, it's never going to wash out of me being a cop, being instinctual, looking around and, and noticing things. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of like addicted to it, I guess, too. So, uh, but, you know, uh, our hearts are really broken. Believe me, we have children. You have children. And even if you don't have children, your heart has to be broken about this. So uh, let's just try and uh, figure it out and maybe uh, figure out ways to prevent it. That's the best thing we, we can do. Margaret R., Bill and Phil, thank you for helping us process the atrocity. I feel for the families and the survivors, the kids in the classroom who survive will need a lot of prayer and professional counseling. That's that's oh, yeah. for sure. You know, oh, Margaret, yeah. um, you know, you're a real person, a real human, and I, I hope that most people feel like you and not, you know, looking for revenge on the cops that perhaps didn't respond the way that everyone expects them to. Yeah, look, there's no forgiving when 19 kids are dead and two adults no one's saying oh let's forgive them uh and you know when you make a mistake like this it's horrendous but then you know at the same point we're expecting and we're seeing and we're disgusted by the politicization how this is getting the politicians are jumping all over this because they're trying to get elected to their next office you know and that's sickening you know um it's just it, it's it's too much. It's too much. You know, it's just like, um, sir, me, um, sirs, Mia, this whole tragedy is nothing but red flags everywhere. My heart breaks for the family suffering and mourning for the babies and adults killed. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, it's, you know, Captain Pollywog Vanderbeef, you're useless. You're saying useless cops. You're useless. Get out of the, in fact, you're out. See you, you know. Uh, don't even uh, acknowledge stuff like no. that. Nikki Bella, military guns don't belong being sold in stores. You know, Nikki, we're, we, that's a, another like whole sh other show, another huge conversation. And of course, something does have to be done about gun control and about teenagers buying AR-15s. I, I don't think we can we can have that. I really don't. I just uh, I think it's crazy. I, at one point, I was, you know basically saying, no, they should be able to buy whatever they want, but too many of these things are happening. And I think it's, uh, I think it's time to step up and, uh, you know, we have to, have, you know, see, that's the problem. People say, we need common sense this, we need common sense that. And then they do something that's so outrageous. There was no common sense involved in it. You know, hundred uh, in New York city, we see them. All they want to do is make laws that they don't, that they don't use. So they can appease their base by saying, oh, we made this legislation to do this. But you don't prosecute the crime. So what good is the law? You know, so we, we've seen the politics of crime fighting and the politics of defunding the police and the politics of weakening the authority of police and the politics of siding with the criminals. We've seen all of that. So. When they start saying, oh, we need legislation. No, you don't need legislation. You just need to enforce the laws that are already on the books. Absolutely, Billy. Um, we saw that there are laws and there are police officers that will make arrests. And we have prosecutors that prosecute the arrest. As of late, in the last few years, 
the prosecutor said we're not going to prosecute specific crimes, whether it be turnstile jumping, urinating, all the, you know, they, they, they don't want to arrest people with guns and, and give them bail and all of that stuff. Uh, it's obviously not working. It's working in reverse of bringing crime down. Crime is going way up. And uh, I think it's that's the common sense that we need to enlist, that it's wrong. We have to go back the other way. It's going to take a lot of time to reverse things and bring crime back down. But uh, there's a lot going on in the world today in 2022. And uh, the person that brought up the red flags in this case, 100%, there was many, many, many red flags. I mean, if he, you announce 15 minutes before you're going to do a school shooting that it's on the internet, that you're going to go shoot up a school and nothing was done. I mean, I don't know that nothing was done, but it, there should have been an immediate notification that person is now go, about to go on a rampage or threatening to it. And I don't know social media, uh, you know, what their uh, uh, analytics are to pick up on stuff like that. But uh, maybe that's one of the things uh, that's just one of the many, many red flags that occurred in this case. The Cole Rogers, super proud of those kiddos, though. They did everything they were supposed to they do, sure the court, especially during a very chaotic and scary situations. Thank you, Nicole Rogers, for that comment. It's uh, very heartfelt and, and very much true. Uh, Wicked Wicked Way 5, thank you for the $5 super chat, and you thank us for our service. Thank you. Thank you thank for you. Uh, acknowledging that. You know, it's a, as much as you, um, you know, you, you did your time, and Phil and I both loved being cops, it's always great to have people say thank you for your service. It's something that some people in the public appreciate, you know, and it's good to know you're appreciated no matter what field of business you're in, you know, Billy, I got to tell you that has made me the few times that it's happened, made me feel so good because, uh, when people recognize that, uh, it, it just gives a little bit of an attaboy to somebody that, you know, uh, you give a part of your life to law enforcement. You do a lot of things, uh, you're helping people that are, uh, you know, victims and, uh, you try to do the right thing and, you know, going through all of the different stages of the stuff that we did. Uh, when I was a young kid, I got a little bit into hunting before I became a police officer. But after being 22 years on the police force, I have problem killing a bug at this stage. And I don't like bugs, but because I just seen so much death and destruction in my time that I could never shoot an animal. That's for sure. But, uh, you know, so it changes you a little bit. And these are the, I guess you could call it battle scars or whatever. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but when somebody stops and says to you, thank for your service. I, I've told the story. I was in no lows. I was signing up for a credit card or whatever. And they said something with law enforcement or military getting a discount. And I said to the girl, oh, I'm, I'm retired law enforcement officer, a young, young um, uh, Asian girl. And she said to me, oh my God, thank you for your service. And I said, this college age kid is thanking me. I was so elated by it. And it, it means a lot to us, but uh, yeah, you know, you, sometimes you don't expect it when it comes yeah. from uh, someone you don't expect it from London girl. Thank you for the 449 super chat. Guys, again, like, you know, we, we felt such a duty to come on today. You know, it's a holiday weekend and, uh, I, you know, I called Phil and, uh, he was, uh, he still had his uh, Santa Claus hat in bed sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> what do they call those things? I didn't have my bottle yet. Uh, yeah, Tommy yeah, says, hat on, you have you your know, bottle. He's talking about this. Yeah. The coffee, he was, you know? he was heating up his veal cutlet parmesan hero for lunch, you know, we and I asked him, Phil, would you come on today? And he goes, I think we have to. I think we have to come on because so much so much has happened and so much of what we thought was true the other day has changed. And um, 
he 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 didn't hesitate. He, he said, "Well, come on, uh, right away." Um, uh, Anthony Santoro, Bill and Phil, what was your gut instinct about the one-hour wait down? That you remember having to wait in the past for SWAT and not wanting to go in New York, and not wanting to in New York City. You know, ESU responds pretty damn quickly. You know, and um, I, you know, I think that. An NYPD captain that would be on the scene in a situation like this, I think would have gave the order to go in uh, right away. You know, they're trained very well. Um, they know they go to these situations all the time. That's another thing. The more you respond to emergency situations, the more experience you have with this, it becomes like a, a muscle that is exercised and you just respond, you know. Billy, I got to tell a quick story. Um, I was in the precinct one time processing an arrest with my partner. A woman came running into the precinct frantic. Uh, my boyfriend has a gun and my baby's in the apartment. He's going to kill my baby. It was right around the corner from the precinct. We put her in the car. We raced around the corner. We were putting it over the radio. Now, ESU is only minutes away. SWAT team is only minutes away in most of these situations. When we got to the door, she in the car on the right over, which was around the block, she's telling us he's drunk. He didn't take his medication. He's got a gun. He's going to kill my baby. He's going to kill my baby. When my partner and I got to that door, we started banging on the door. We were not waiting for ESU. Uh, the perpetrator opened the door. He tried to slam a, a quart of beer over my partner's head. We rushed in. He, he started to race to the back bedroom where the gun was. He went to open the drawer. We tackled him. The baby was unhurt. We took the gun away from him. That was a, a, a judgment call on our part. I'm not trying to say that I'm some kind of a hero or anything like that, but it was so fluid. And when it was going on, we didn't even think about ESU because we had that frantic woman telling us he's got a gun. He's going to kill my baby. It was a baby that was less than a year old. It was an infant baby. Thank God it turned out where we didn't get hurt badly. We got the gun. We arrested the guy. It worked out good. But my point is, is that when something is happening like that, your instincts kick in. We knew we had to preserve that life. And that's what we did. Absolutely. Jay and his 19 cents. Let's make one thing clear. When you're facing a situation like this officers have to take orders, but when children's lives are involved, all orders go out the window. Jay, we, we, uh, 100%. we spoke about that. We said that you're, you're required to obey lawful orders and, you know, you can discuss the lawful order after the fact, after this, after you save those kids lives, you know? So that's for sure. Um, Phil, I, you know, we've been on for an hour and 10 minutes. I think that uh, we, we really got, got out what we intended to get out. We got a lot of the truth out that we weren't able to get out the other day, and I, I feel good about that. I feel good that we were able to speak to our um, our folks, our fans, as I call them, our subscribers, who are also on a holiday weekend. So, guys, I want to thank you all for tuning in today. You know, you could be at the beach, could be surfing, you could be cooking, you could be in your backyard, whatever you're doing on this holiday weekend. But, again, I want to thank you for tuning in to us because it means a lot to us. Phil, final words. Final words, Billy. You showed some emotion there. God bless you. Sometimes you just have to let it out. You're a human being. I love you, pal. Uh, I feel the same way. This is a very emotional story. I got choked up a few times during the last few days over this, but that's okay because you need to let it out. Um, wherever you are this weekend, all of our uh, uh, subscribers, uh, people in the chat, 
God bless you all. Thank you so much. Hug your children. Be glad uh, to enjoy the weekend with your family. Uh, there's a lot of families in Texas that aren't going to be able to enjoy one minute of it. And uh, say a prayer for them. And uh, that's about it, Billy. Folks, again, have a great weekend. And thanks for tuning in. And God bless. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just